Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome, everyone, to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you're a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, growing abundantly, and if you want to improve your overall life. My name is Jay Fansom, and I've made it my purpose to unbox and share the amazing stories from people of every profession all over the world. I'm grateful that you're here today. Let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Welcome everyone back to another exciting conversation on the Storybox today. And I am thrilled to bring to you a person whose work is no doubt going to challenge and inform you on many different levels, especially when it comes to addiction and failure. So my guest today is none other than Jessica Leahy. Now, for those of you that don't know who she is, She's a teacher, a writer, and a powerhouse mum. Over 20 years, she's taught every grade from 6 to 12 uh, in both public and private schools. She writes about education, parenting, and child welfare for the Atlantic, Vermont Public Radio, the Washington Post, and the New York Times, just to name a few. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, how the best parents learn to let go so their children can succeed. She's also a member of the Amazon Studios Thought Leader Board and wrote the educational curriculum for Amazon Kids, The Stinky and Dirty Show. Jessica earned a BA in Comparative Literature from the University of Massachusetts. Yeah, I can't say that correctly, but anyway, and a JD with a concentration in Juvenile and Educational Law from the University of North Carolina School of Law. So she's very well versed in all this, uh, very highly educated. Uh, she lives in Vermont with her husband and two sons. Her second book, which is out right now, you can go and get a copy, and I highly encourage you to do so, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. Uh, and my goodness, was this such a informative episode uh, of the story box. Like I, I had so many questions and I wanted to keep the conversation rolling, but I know that you guys are going to really get something from this. Uh, we talk about the gift of failure first. So why failure is such a, a problem for a lot of young people when they go through it and why she decided to call it a gift in the first place. Uh, and then we go into her second book, The Addiction Inoculation, 
So why we suffer with addictions in the first place and how we can help overcome them. But if you do get something from it, I would love for you guys to share it around with everyone that you know. I believe this is a message that needs to be shared uh, a lot with our society because there are a lot of people out there that are struggling with addiction and especially if you go through a, a failure and you don't know how to manage that failure, then this is the episode for you because it is ultimately going to be okay. So before you go, please uh, not only share it, you can watch the full video on YouTube too, but I would love for you guys to let me know what you think of this episode by leaving a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts uh, or whichever platform that you use to leave reviews. That would be fantastic. Also, don't forget to subscribe. Watch the full video if you like watching the full video on YouTube. I made it simple for you. You can just type up the story box uh, in YouTube and it should come up. Um, but all the links are in the show notes below too. But anyway, I'm going to be quiet now because it is time to dive into the story box. So we're going to, we're going to walk in there today instead of diving uh, and listen to the incredible story and the wisdom and advice from none other than Jessica Leahy. Ooh, that was quite an intro. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm so excited. You're more than welcome. I love doing those long intros. I feel like I get I get excited and pumped and I hope you guys get <laughs> excited too when I get to do it. But it's really, really an honor to have you here. I love your dog in the background. I wish There's I had There's actually, the reason I'm moving so much on our video is that I have three of them in the room with me and they've mm -hmm. had to sit through a couple of quiet things today and they're getting antsy. And so I'm petting them one with one hand and one with the other just to keep them quiet. Oh, how beautiful. I wish I could show you my <laughs> dog. She's a German shepherd. So she's a little, she's a big baby, I, I say, but um, uh, I love, I love dogs. Anyway, we can talk about that for ages, but I want to <laughs> sort of ask you a question that I always ask all my guests at the very, very start of every conversation, which is what does success look like to you? So, well, I'm so glad you asked that question, mainly because it has changed so much. I mean, I am a total sucker for praise and I'm such a sucker for like getting an A. And for a very long time, I was, you know, the oldest kid. I tried to be the perfect kid. And for a long time, that was really what drove me. I was actually on a phone call this morning um, with um, the publicist that I'm working with for my new book. And she, we were talking about goals. And I said, honestly, this new book is about preventing some substance abuse in kids. I worked in a drug and alcohol rehab for five years with adolescents who were, you know, substance abuse, some abusing substances. And um, I think I'm, I'm 50 now. So I think I'm to the point in my life where I honestly can say this without, I'm, I'm not blowing smoke. Like if this book, this addiction book in particular, if this helps a, a couple of kids not end up in a rehab classroom, that for me is success. And I think I, I have said that in the past and kind of sort of meant it. And, you know, I want to help kids. And my whole life has been about teaching kids and helping kids, you know, and I've worked as a, a ski instructor for disabled kids. And I've done all, you know, sort of all, most of the stuff I've done in my adult life has been about kids. And yet there's always been this part of me that's like, but I also want all the approval and all the A's. But I think once I hit 50, I, I really that this seismic shift happened in me. And so 
It would be fantastic if this new book hit the New York Times bestseller list. It would be fantastic if I'm getting all kinds of great reviews. But I know for I worked on this book for three years and I know for a fact that it's going to help kids because we do know that substance abuse is preventable. But, Mm. you know, I sound like the biggest jerk, but I absolutely 100% mean every word I say about that, that I really do hope that this book helps kids. I'm happy. I live, you know, I live in the woods of Vermont. I'm a hermit when I'm not out on the road speaking and out on the road speaking is also just more teaching, which is super fun. And I love that part of the job and I miss that part of the job. But, you know, from my little office here in the woods of Vermont, um, I, you know, having uh, as a person who's seen what drugs and alcohol can do to kids and can, you know, derail their lives. Um, I just, and as if an alcoholic myself with, you know, uh, bunch of years of recovery under my belt. I just, I just want to save other kids from having to go through some of what I did. Mm. I think your work is honestly incredible and we'll no, no doubt dive into um, substance abuse and addiction in, in a moment, but I'm sure. curious, like you mentioned there that you're a sucker for praise and all that sort of stuff and admiration. Yeah. Where did that come from? Uh, you know, it's just how, I, honestly, I really do think it's how I'm wired. Um, my parents never really pushed me. Um, uh, they didn't have to, cause I really, I just wanted to be good and I wanted to be good at stuff. And I, and th- the nice thing is I love to learn. I really, really love to learn. And I think if I didn't really love to learn that that could have become some real toxic stuff, but f- for me now, uh, well, even, you know, in high school and college, um, I was very lucky in that, yes, I wanted the A's, but I also really enjoyed the learning. I think if it hadn't been that way, it would have been a mess. Um, so it's not like I had these whip cracking parents over me all the time. Um, you know, they expected me to do cool things, but they also trusted that I was going to make good decisions and they let me pick my own classes and they let me decide, you know, where I wanted to go to college and all of that sort of stuff. So it really did come from some weird first child messed up you know, I don't know. I just, uh, and that's what was so hard about becoming a parent. And one of the places that gift of failure came from, which was all of a sudden I wasn't getting a report card on, you know, like I've got these, these infants and I don't know, am I doing this stuff right? It feels like I'm doing stuff, but I don't know. And so, you know, who am I going to look to for some sort of grade on how I'm doing as the parent? And so you have to kind of shift your expectations about where your feelings of, no, I'm doing okay, are going to come from. Because mm. I, I personally believe that a, a praise is addictive. Like we we do get addicted to that yeah. of, of getting something when people said something nice about our, our work or who we mm-hmm. are. So. Yeah. So I can really yeah. understand that. <laughs> as well, and I have a I have a podcast um, uh, for writers, and my co-host KJ Delantonia, we talk a lot about the shiny things, and um, the shiny things for us mean like okay, I could pitch an article right now when I'm completely overburdened or I, or I could, you know, apply for that job that I really don't actually want to do, but boy, that would be a cool job title to have after your name. Like those shiny things that tempt us, but not for the right reasons. And I, for most of my life, I've been a real sucker for those shiny things. I've always wanted those shiny things. And now I'm able to sort of let my brain go in that direction and play out how that would work. Once you've got the shiny thing, like what I actually enjoy that job and I'm able to then say okay no I don't need to go for that shiny thing let me pay attention to the things that actually fulfill me over here um and but that's been you know like I said I'm 50 that's been a long time coming 
Do you think it is dangerous for young kids to feel that way about like constantly trying to please everybody, get the praise of others? You know, I get, I do a lot of talking with parents who are really worried about their kids achieving all the things and having all the opportunities. And then when I get to talk to kids, a lot of kids tell me that they get to a certain point and they realize, wait a second, I don't know why I've been doing this. In fact, this happened um, a couple of years ago when a friend of mine's kid applied to college and his applications were off and they were gone. He suddenly sat down and said, he reevaluated the things he was doing because a lot of the things he had been doing were for that college application. And now he had, he was stopping and looking around and saying, now that I don't have to do those things anymore to fulfill some check boxes on some application somewhere, um, is that something I really want to be doing? And he said he dumped about half the stuff that he was doing because he wasn't doing it because it actually made him happy. And I love the fact that at 18, he was able to have that kind of insight into his motivations. But yeah, I do think it's really, it's it can get toxic when it's the parent imposing those um, those priorities on a kid or when the kid is picking up those priorities on their own or from their peers or from whatever it is around them. Um, it can, you know, I, I think it's really important to know to, to find things that you can do and get that sense of, you know, the only place we get that like Mihai Chiksent Mihai sense of flow is from things that are coming from somewhere deep inside of us. And for me, it's things like, you know, cross-country skiing, which for me is just the right level of difficulty. It's especially something called skate skiing. It's really hard. I'm never going to be very fast at it, but it gets me to this place where I'm doing it for the sake of the thing itself and time and space falls away, which is the Mihai Csikszent Mihai flow thing. Um, it, a lot of kids don't get to experience that until they go off and do the stuff that really interests them for the sake of the thing itself, not because they're doing it because their parents said they had to do it or they're doing it because their guidance counselor said it had to be on their college application. And I wish some kids could get that sense of flow a little bit earlier in their lives without, you know, because they're finding and discovering out who they are and what they want to do and what really turns their crank um, as opposed to what we say should turn their crank. Mm. So where did your interest in all this begin? Did you always see yourself as a teacher, a lawyer, that kind of career path? So I actually went to law school because I had, I thought, I very specifically, I thought I was going to work in juvenile law. And I was working with this amazing woman. Her name was Marsha Mori, and she was a uh, district attorney in juvenile law, in juvenile court. And I just so admired her. And loved it, loved every minute of it. But in the middle of law school, I was asked to teach a class in a summer program at a local college. And I came home that first day of teaching. My husband took one look at me and he said, are you even going to finish law school? Like he could tell I was lit up from inside. And I did finish law school, but I also knew that I wasn't going to practice law. I knew I was going straight into teaching. Um, and so that was also kind of fun because law school became this really cool intellectual exercise because I knew I wanted to finish what I started, but I got to finish law school knowing I probably wasn't even going to take the bar. Um, and so, and went directly into teaching afterwards. And I have to say, I had a really fun, I had a, such a great time during that second half of law school because I was doing it for the exercise of it. Um, thank goodness it was a really inexpensive law school and I was able to afford it. It was in-state tuition at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which is so inexpensive. Um, 
But then I went straight into teaching and have been so happy. And the book, The Gift of Failure, was really born out of middle school. And so in the U.S., middle school is, you know, sometimes grades six, seven and eight, sometimes just seven and eight. Sometimes there's one school I happen to love that has seven, eight and nine. But it's that in-between place, you know, where kids aren't little kids anymore and they're not high school kids and they're still willing to like give hugs and, you know, be emotionally honest. And yet they're growing into their brains and this new executive functionability in their frontal lobes. And those kids just are endlessly fascinating and entertaining to me. And that's where Gift of Failure came from, from this incredible place in life where they're first figuring out who they are. We're asking them to do more than their brains are cognitively equipped to handle from an executive function perspective and wanting to help preserve what's most special in them before it's lost to those other toxic um, influences. Like you should do this because this is the place where you'll earn the most money and get the most shiny things and that sort of stuff. Not that shiny things aren't great. Shiny things are fantastic, but I don't, you know, I wanted what was magic about those kids to be preserved until they had the ability to preserve it for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that's where gift of failure was born. So why did you decide to call the book? Why, why is failure a gift in, <laughs> in those senses? Because for a young person looking at it, I guess, going through a failure, they would not see a failure as a good thing. They hate it <laughs> and not yeah. go anywhere near failures. They're trying to stay away from it. So why is failure a gift for a young person listening to this? Okay. So I have to, here we have to do a little bit of a dive into how the publishing industry works. So <laughs> I happen to love my title now. I really do. One of my really good friends, Julie Lithcott Hames had a book come out at exactly the same time as mine called How to Raise an Adult. And our books are very similar. She comes at it from the perspective of a college dean from a former college dean from Stanford, who's was noticing that these kids just had no sense of who they are and how to get there. And, and they couldn't do stuff on their own. Anyway, so our books are around really similar things. My title is The Gift of Failure. Hers is How to Raise an Adult. There's a clear sort of like positive angle to her title and an angle that really scares the heck out of some parents to my title, but also kind of provocative. The way publishing works is it took sort of a group effort to get to a title. And um, in the end, that title came from my agent. I'm so grateful because I love the title. But the point is not that I want kids to fail. It's that they will fail. And it, I want them to have a positive adaptive response to failure when it happens. And the reason for that is as a middle school teacher, as someone who loves middle school aged kids, my job was to hang out with these people all day long and watch them screw up over and over and over again and pick my battles and my learning moments very carefully because there isn't a gift in every single mistake that you make but there but if you can have a positive adaptive response you don't deny that you made a mistake you don't blame it on someone else you don't pretend it didn't happen you're able to actually look at okay what did I do? What worked? Okay, I'll keep that. What didn't work? I'll leave that behind and I'll move forward with a sense of, okay, next iteration, what am I going to do next time? And there's, you know, there's lots of different books that, that tackle that. Tim Harford does a great job in the book Adapt, talking about business. Obviously, there's lots and lots of books about this, but for me, it really came down to how do we help kids 
know how to react when something negative happens in their lives that um, how do we help them feel a sense of self-efficacy? How do we help them give them a sense of control back? Because so much control has been taken away from children. We don't give them much autonomy in their lives. And how do we get them engaged? And how do we help them engage in learning, becoming, growing for the sake of the thing itself instead of because they might get some trophy or A or carrot or money at the end of it? So there's a little bit, you know, the, the gift of failure is very much about, you know, extrinsic and intrinsic motivators, but most of the book is about how we promote intrinsic motivation and, you know, that's autonomy, competence and connection and, you know, and, and looking at kids in the middle school and the book is about kids from kindergarten all the way through to college, but there's something about kids in middle school that was a beautiful sort of proving ground for a lot of these questions that I had about how to make that happen. Which all those questions that you just mentioned, they're quite big and quite, you can dive into each and every one of them with so many different avenues to them. One of them that I'm curious about is what did you notice that actually starts this in the first place for a young person? Why do we have this fear of failing in the first place for a young kid, especially? Yeah, it's interesting. I've written a fair amount about, um, I had a column at the New York Times for three years called the Parent Teacher Conference. And one of the biggest questions I got was, how do I help my sort of my anxious kid? How do I help my perfectionist kid? And what it often came down to was a real um, focus, both by the kid and the parent often, on the end product and hardly ever on the process of learning. Like, you know, there's all this work we do to learn you know, whatever it is and um, in a class in school or in piano or in, you know, glass blowing or whatever. And yet we're hardly ever talking about like the moment to moment, what's happening and the learning and the process. And so, you know, Carol Dweck comes out with the book Mindset and we get to really start diving into, you know, a focus on the process over um, the product is really, really helps kids sort of focus on what's more most important about it, helps them understand that, we're going to, we're going to screw up all kinds of stuff throughout our lives. And, you know, I think if anything, the process of learning about intrinsic motivation and learning and, and all this stuff um, has been so much fun to watch happen in my own home because my kids are now fully privy to all the mistakes I make and how I get, you know, how I fix things and how you handle it when you really, really screw up. And, um, you know, I don't know, people who want their kids to think they're perfect. I don't quite understand that because we are the most, the best teachers, the first and best teachers for our kids around how we model our own responses. And at the very beginning of the show, you mentioned the stinky and dirty show, and it still makes me smile and laugh every time I hear that title because the stinky and stinky, something about stinky and dirty just makes me laugh. But that's what that entire show is about. It's about these two machines that have to do some task for their town and they're gonna screw it up like 10 times but every single time they say, okay, what worked? What didn't work? What are we going to take forward with us? What are we going to leave behind? What are we going to try next? And by the way, we'll support each other while we're doing it. And, you know, that's really, that's what a great parent does, I think, anyway. What has been one of your greatest failures that you sort of remember the most? <laughs> so I was asked to write about this right after Gift of Failure came out. Richard Branson has on his website, he has a blog where he loves people to recount stories of failure. So I was asked to recount a story of failure. He's got a thing for failure stories. And I told my students what I was going to write about. And they said, 
that's not your biggest failure. You have to write about the thing, the book thing, the thing you told us about. And it turns out I was going to write about when I got a D in law school. And my first instinct was to quit law school because, you know, if you quit quickly, no one will ever know that you failed in the first place. You can just say, you know, oh, it wasn't for me, whatever. And what they wanted me to write about that scared me to death, I thought I was going to barf just writing this story down, was um, when I finished my first draft of The Gift of Failure, my editor summoned me to New York to tell me that the book was so bad it was unpublishable, that it just didn't work at all from an organizational perspective, and maybe we should hire a ghostwriter to help you. And I thought I was going to die. I thought, this is it complete failure at my career. Plus I'm a right at that point, I had been writing a column for the New York times. I had been writing at the Atlantic for years and I, I just couldn't. And so I had to, in that moment, what I wanted to do was curl up in a ball and just freak out, go limp. And instead, what I said to her was, um, no, I can, I can learn how to fix this. And we had a little bit of time because the book had been postponed for a different reason. And I said, give me two probationary chapters. Tell me everything I did wrong. And I'll try not to throw up. I'll write it all down uh, and give me two chapters to try to get it right. And she did. And she let me have two chapters and those chapters turned into the whole book and we never needed a ghostwriter. And I, P.S., learned how to write a book. Of course, I didn't know how to write a book. I had never written a book that worked. Mm. So the cool thing about that is that it worked out in the end, number one. And I can tell this story because it worked out in the end and it, you know, but on the, the coolest thing about it for me was when I handed in the draft for the addiction inoculation, I had this big checklist of things not to do and things to do based on my old notes from all the mistakes I'd made that she told me about with the gift of failure. And I just double checked everything and made sure that everything I learned back then I was implementing now. And we handed, I handed the book in and there just wasn't a lot of fixes to do. And it came together really fast. Um, I learned how to write a book. And so I guess, you know, for me, the big lesson in that was if I could have taken the easy way out, I could have said, yes, let's get a ghostwriter. The name didn't even have to appear on the book. Half the time it's a secret. I could maybe thank them in the acknowledgements for their support or something like that. No one would have to know, but I would know and I would learn as much as I did. So that big failure story. And what was interesting is when it published in, I'll give you the, I'll send you the link. When it published in the Richard Branson's blog, so many writers wrote me and said the exact same thing happened to me or thank goodness you told me that story because I'm feeling a lot better now about all the edits I just got from my editor. Um, and, you know, I, I've got more thank you mail for that column, for that article than just about anything else I've ever written. That is actually really helpful for me to hear because I just, <laughs> I just finished my first ever book. Now I'm only 24. And I, I, it's, it took me two years to write this one book, not because mm -hmm. of the fact that it was hard to write a book, but it was a content that I was writing about the stories that I had been through in my life, re reliving it, like revisiting mm -hmm. it and going deep as much as I possibly could in that, that was a challenge. Like what, do, what should I yeah. say? Here? What shouldn't I say? And I was so nervous when I actually send it up to somebody because number one, mm -hmm. I suck at grammar. That's, that's like the worst thing for me. It's like the, the bane of ex existence for me. 
And secondly, I didn't know if anyone was going to enjoy reading it, especially because the grammar was so bad. I didn't know if anyone was going to understand it. <laughs> but I sent it to a few uh, editors and all that sort of stuff. A few of them got back to me and said, no, nah, we're not going to even touch this. And I was like, okay, fair enough. And then one of them got back to me and she said, I love this. Such a beautiful story that you've recounted. I'm happy to, to edit this. I'm like, are you sure? Like, you, are you sure you want to go down this road? <laughs> it's not, it's not going to be an easy one. And she's, she was just like really excited to help me out. And um, that also gave me inspiration to write my second book, which is completely different to the first one. But I completely understand how you feel or felt in that moment because it, it's so true. Like failure, I often say to people, like in failure, you learn one of life's greatest lessons, which is humility. Like you're not infallible. You're not better than anybody else. And I think it's an important lesson for young kids to also learn too. Like not to mm -hmm. have a big head, not to have a big ego or something like that. Um Sorry. I'm well, and going. I think, no, no, no. I think it's also what was also really interesting about the experience is that my kids were, were there and listening and I was telling them about what was happening as it went down. So like mm -hmm. they knew how bad things were for me and the bad, deep, dark place I was in when I first found out how much work there was to do. But they also witnessed me do that work. And then they witnessed me take that work and the lessons learned there and apply them to the new book. And so like my kids were eagerly waiting to hear what my editor thought of the second book because they knew what the stakes were like for me with, because of the first book. So now, you know, first of all, I owe this editor so much because she was willing to take that risk on me. Um, and and because she's one of the most amazing teachers I've ever had, you know, I list the teachers, the best teachers in my life, and my editor has been one of them. So, you know, this is something that I hope my kids get a good look at so that when these things will happen to them and they will um, say, oh, OK, well, when mom really screwed up that book that she wrote <laughs> the first time around, here's how she handled it. She didn't give up. She didn't, you know, curl up in a ball. She actually said, OK, how can I learn to be better? And that's, you know, that's what my job is as a parent is not to shield them from those difficult experiences, but to show them how to cope with them and work through those things in their own lives. Yeah. And actually, I have to say, my kid screwed something up really badly a couple of summers ago. One of my kids really screwed it up. And he decided not to tell me about it at the time. And he told me about it only later after he'd fixed it. And it was a lot of work to fix this thing that he had done. But he really wanted to be able to tell me about it once it was completely fixed. And I was... That was like, ding, 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 ding. I won, I won. I have this kid that didn't bother to come to me. He knew I would help. He knew I would save him. He knew I would fix it for him. But that's not what he wanted from me. What he wanted from me was to be proud of him a couple of weeks later when he came to me with the solution. I was just, that for me was like, I, I hold that dear as, you know, one of my big parenting successes. Wow. And it isn't even one of mine. It's his. It's his success, not mine. But I'm still very proud of it. How do you teach a young person to do that? Like have that kind of mindset? What are the, the tools or the strategies? Well, it's funny. So you come back to that stinky and dirty stuff I was talking about that when you write, when I worked on the curriculum for that show and they said, okay, well, what is it that makes a kid resilient? Mm -hmm. It isn't really about 
that kid. It's about the environment you, you give them. So when stinky and dirty, um, so stinky and dirty are these two machines. They're, they're sort of at a preschool level in their sort of thinking. And when they're presented with a problem, they have like their first solution is crazy. Let's say like there's something heavy at the bottom of the hill and they have to get it to the top of the hill in order to complete some task. Their first thought is like, okay, well, when the moon comes up, we'll throw a rope around it and the moon will help pull this thing up to the top of the hill. Well, of course that doesn't work, but part of that idea has some merit, that rope bit. Maybe the rope can work like the moon part that didn't work, but maybe the rope part. And in the meantime, they're continuing to support each other. They're continuing to realize that if they need to ask anyone for help, that it will be forthcoming, that the rest of the community isn't going to mock them for making bad decisions in the first place or for trying out ideas that didn't work. And the vision we had for this show was that kids would watch it and be thinking constantly in their head about other other decision as well uh, decisions as well so it's about the and this is very much what teaching is about i can't teach kids to be more resilient and to be more innovative unless i create a classroom culture that supports the kind of thinking that allows kids to do, you know, whether you call it design thinking or whether you do it trial and error thinking or whether you call it project-based learning, it requires that sort of um, style of teaching requires you to have a very supportive classroom where everyone is engaged in both the successes and the mistakes and learning from the mistakes. And so that's what we have to do as families is see the kid that we have in front of us, understand what their goals are and support them, even if we don't fully agree with or think that they're going to be successful on the first try. You know, I think that kids really need to be seen, need to be understood, need to be heard. And then we support them as they grow towards whatever it is they're going to grow towards. Um, and part of that has to be of their own making. I'm curious, having been mm -hmm. a teacher for the last 20 years, having seen how you teach a child or teach in a classroom way back when, have you noticed a good change over time or has it been sort of shifting towards a bad change for our school system, the way we teach kids? See, you're asking an eternal optimist. Um, <laughs> I, am, I, I am constantly optimistic about the state of, you know, education is a really big ship to turn around. And when you have an education policy as complicated and as many turf wars as we do, especially in the U.S., it's really difficult to do any kind of change quickly. Um, however, shifts are happening that are so exciting to me. Um, you know, A through F grading is the way that grading has always happened in the U.S. And no one ever questioned it until, you know, suddenly people are like, well, wait a second, is that actually a good measure of learning? And the answer is, no, it is not. It's a terrible measure of learning and it's a very blunt instrument. And so suddenly now we're talking about things like um, standards-based classroom or standards-based learning or mastery-based learning, which is actually about the learning and not the end product of some letter. You know, in law school, for example, the way law school works, a lot of law schools work, is that you study something for an entire semester and you have one test at the end of that semester that is your entire grade. Mm -hmm. That's a summative or cumulative assessment, and it is a terrible terrible tool for learning. It's a great way to take a photograph, a snapshot of where someone is at a particular moment in time, but not always, um, because unless you, uh, it depends on the test itself, but lots of formative assessments, understanding where kids are sort of every day, that works great. Um, 
there are lots of things we're doing, the shift towards summative or mastery-based assessments, the shift towards more formative assessments and fewer cumulative assessments, a shift towards wondering and questioning whether or not kids are actually learning stuff or whether they're just really good at parroting back what you want to hear. I see that happening. And it's funny because I was going to ask you a question, which is, why aren't you on Twitter? And um, the what's interesting about Twitter for me is so many people talk about Twitter as being this total cesspool of just negativity. But this was true a couple of years ago. I'm not sure it's still true, but as a profession, teachers are the biggest users of Twitter. So on Twitter, I follow somewhere around 11,000 teachers and I get so much from them because on Twitter is where some of the most innovative discussion is happening around how to change education for the better and open. I mean, yes, there's a lot of snarky stuff that's horrible, but for the most part, it's a really amazing place where constructive change and discussion is happening. Um, and I'm, I think I, I really just have to be optimistic about education. Otherwise, you know, why on earth would I be an education writer for as long as I've been an education writer? So yeah, I'm hopeful. I, I'm always going to find things to be hopeful about in education, but I think there's real reasons to be hopeful right now. Mm, I have to agree with you on that. And to question <laughs> why I'm not on Twitter, I actually am on Twitter. I just oh, okay. I couldn't there. find you. <laughs> I just forget <laughs> to go on there, to be honest, because I've got I've got Facebook and Instagram, which are the two yeah, yeah, yeah. I go on the most. Yeah. But I created a Twitter account for the sake of creating it, and then I was yeah. like, I don't like the platform, so yeah. I kind of forget yeah, yeah, to yeah. go on there. <laughs> well, the and and the advice and the advice, especially to writers, well, to most people, is to pick your platform that you find. Number one, I know that's where most of my readers are. So, like a friend of mine who writes fiction, her readers are on Facebook. Like that, she gets all of her engagement on Facebook. I get all of my engagement on Twitter, and so I I hang out on Twitter, but um, but mostly because that's where all the teachers are. <laughs> I might have to go back on there now that um. Yeah, it's sort of changing a little bit, but uh, I'm trying to keep my mind clean a little bit <laughs> from a lot oh. of negativity. On, on <laughs> oh, I totally get it. Of, I of think recent. if it weren't for, I think if it weren't for all those teachers, I don't know that I would be on Twitter either. So yeah, um, I think um, it's who you follow on online, but then you got absolutely as a pop up. But anyway, we can go down a rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> on yeah. that one. Um, All I know is that is if I need to find a book for a specific kid, and especially like in my rehab classroom, if I have a kid who's like 17, but his reading level is maybe at like, you know, he's about 13 years old at his reading level and he's only interested in certain things and he's a reluctant reader. He doesn't really want to read because he's never thought he was a good reader. I can go on Twitter and I can say, hey, literacy teachers, I have this kid who's 17, but reads at this level and is interested in these topics. Give me some suggestions and I'll get like this deluge of selections for this kid. And I like to think of, you know, the, my ability to match kids with books as one of my superpowers. So that's why it's incredibly useful to me. I might have to join this uh, amazing community because I'm, <laughs> I'm a huge, I'm a huge nerd. Like if you can't already see, I've got books there. I've got books, yeah. my, my left and yeah. my right, all educational content. And I actually, it's funny because last year I thought that I wanted to become a teacher. So I went to university to study a bachelor's of arts and a bachelor of education. And I, I finished the first semester and I did pretty well at it, but I realized something that was hilarious. 
I was actually interviewing people that wrote textbooks and I was learning <laughs> firsthand from them. And I'm like, yeah, this is so much better than actually reading yeah. the textbook, like hearing, yeah. hearing the wisdom from yeah. that educator or that professor was for me, that's how I learned. And it was more profound. So I'm like, yep. what do I want more? Can I, I'll go to the actual source. <laughs> right. And, you know, and I'm all for that. I mean, that's why I say I have the best job in the world, because for me as a journalist, anyway, I would get interested in a topic, go research the heck out of it, and then translate it for the popular audience. And, you know, that's what I've tried to do with my books too, is, you know, to do a deep, deep research dive. And I'm lucky I'm married to a scientist. I'm married to a statistician. So anytime I, I have to go and say, hey, wait, is this study quality or is this study just hogwash and he'll help me with that stuff um but for me i can do a deep deep dive way beyond what anyone would really want to know um and then find the stuff that sort of that sort of feeds a narrative and that's like the best job in the whole entire world i cannot think of anything i'd really rather do and then teach other people about it i mean it's fantastic I, I and which is exactly what you're doing i mean you are teaching people about stuff you're interested in. And I think, you know, teachers, especially with the advent of the internet, teachers have become all kinds of things. You know, I got to write an article about um, my favorite YouTube educators. Um, I got to write an article about teaching as performance art. And I interviewed Teller from Penn and Teller. You know, there's all kinds, like at, when I interviewed Adam Savage from Mythbusters, you know, I said, you have become some kid's most important teacher. And that is such a place of privilege. And yet all these teachers are coming out of places that we wouldn't have expected um, for them to appear. It's, it's amazing time to be a teacher. You were saying earlier, you're making me jealous earlier by where you live and you're making me jealous of who you got to interview and speak to. So. I've been very lucky. I've been very, very lucky. And really, uh, and the, you get the coolest people when you come to them from a place of, I want to learn something. The yeah. biggest coup for me was what I really wanted to do was I wanted to talk to Stephen King about teaching grammar because Stephen King used to be an English teacher. And I wrote his agent and I said, I am dying to interview Stephen King for The Atlantic about teaching grammar. And he went for it. And so I got to talk to Stephen King about teaching grammar like the and he's such a grammar geek, too. He's, he calls it business English. And it was like the dream interview to really geek out with Stephen King. It's in The Atlantic. If you Google like Stephen King and grammar and Jessica Leahy, you'll find it. It's was my favorite interview ever. I think don't tell any of the other people I ever interviewed, though. No, I won't. I'll keep that up. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm, I'm so like, I'm a huge geek. So like that, um, I'm so happy. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one question I do want to ask you, uh, Jessica, is going back to, you mentioned that you're speaking to your publicist about goals that you have mm -hmm. in this book. How mm -hmm. have they changed from your last book or have they changed at all? Or do you have more goals that you want? You know, what's really interesting is I think they're similar goals. The Gift of Failure was written for parents and teachers. And the Addiction Inoculation is written for a very similar, oops, for, sorry, written for a very similar audience. And it's really parents, teachers, coaches, anyone who works with kids, anyone who sort of has an influence on kids' lives. And I think for me, I have a dual, I have a dual goal, which is to help parents and teachers and coaches and mentors know 
what works best for teaching kids and helping kids want to learn and be engaged with their lives and their education. Um, and then helping kids get more invested, engaged. And it's the same thing, I think, with the addiction inoculation, which is, you know, before we can help kids, we have to think about our own relationship to substances. And as someone who has, by the time the book comes out, willing, about eight years sober, um, you know, I just want people to understand their own use and to think about how that impacts their kids, because so many of the risk factors for substance abuse come from sort of the household we grow up in. And then moving forward to help kids have not need to turn to substances to deal with their stress and anxieties and traumas and things like that. And their mm -hmm. issues with learning or their issues with um, social ostracism, all these sorts of things. And, you know, especially since I got to interview so many people who got sober young, oh my gosh, the different place their lives could have gone if they hadn't gotten sober. I mean, many of them would be dead and they say that very honestly. Um, I just, and for me, it's a way for me to take those experiences that turned out okay and somewhere in my head impose them on my students who I'm just, you know, I don't know where a lot of my students are now and I just hope they're okay. And so I like to imagine them happy and sober and healthy and, you know, going out in the world. So I think education to the adults and impact on the kids. I think that's always been my goal, that dual purpose. I was going to mention trauma and have you done a lot of research into trauma and addiction, how yeah. they, they correlate yeah. to each other. I mean, you already did yeah. mention it, but yeah, I'm so, no, I'm so grateful because adverse childhood experiences, the results of the CDC Kaiser Permanente study on adverse childhood experiences that then has been, you know, suddenly is a little bit more in the public um, discourse because of people like Nadine Burke Harris, who writes about it in, in relationship to her pediatrics practice. Um, Yes. I mean, adverse childhood experiences and trauma you have as a child um, are a big part, a big, big part of substance abuse and substance use disorder risk. And we can't not talk about those things. And, you know, Gabor Matei has done a great job of talking about trauma as as one of the factors in what he sees um, in Vancouver with his clients and practice uh, and patients. Um, but there's a lot more to be said. And it's not just about trauma either. There's a lot of other stuff that are huge risk factors for addiction. Substance abuse comes out of things like, you know, early social ostracism, early aggression towards other kids, early academic failure. We have to pay attention to a lot of things that are happening early in kids' lives, intervene and get them the help they need so that they don't have to self-medicate later. Mm, I, think, I think it's, yeah, very important. I actually did a, a study in a research paper uh, for university on trauma. And I found mm -hmm. that almost 90% or thereabouts of the cases for kids that went through addiction later on in life. And even I looked at my own life and all the addictions that I, I had, it all came or it stemmed from some form of, uh, abuse early mm -hmm. on in life or some kind of trauma that they experienced in the home, uh, first and foremost, or even outside of the home. So I know for me, it was in the home and that sort of led to other addictions later on in yeah. life. And it's just like when you do that sort of deep dive, you find some very fascinating things. 
So it's not just substance abuse either. It's, you know, if the higher, so adverse childhood experiences, you take this little quiz and you score your adverse childhood experiences for the number of experiences that you have. They call them ACEs, the number of ACEs you have. And the higher your number, the higher your risk of everything from stroke to heart disease to um, substance abuse, all of the, there's so many things that happens later on in life that are, that, that began with, you know, the household you grew up in, whether or not there was substance abuse, whether or not there was violence, um, lots of other factors as well. So it's actually, you can go online anytime you want, take a little quiz and see what your ACE score is. And, uh, and it's good to know that because, you know, a lot of people have to turn to alternate ways to treat their, to quote unquote, treat their pain from trauma. And sometimes that's a substances. And oftentimes as well, for what I found for me, it's they go back to what can you control in your own life? Yeah. A way to sort of uh, heal from the addiction yeah. or the trauma or the pain. So, because that's what I did. So, and I'm not saying that everyone is the same as me, but most often than not, it's very similar. Um, yeah. 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 Kids, you're talking about some really cool areas of research. You're talking about a couple of things. The research on learned helplessness is really interesting. It turns out the way to um, subvert our natural tendency toward learned helplessness when faced with long-term pain and suffering is to give more control back to the subject. The more control you feel you have, the less helpless you feel. There's some really cool research on that from uh, Martin Seligman out of University of Pennsylvania. I could speak to you for ages about this stuff, <laughs> but I do want to be respectful of your time. I have two final questions, if that's okay sure. for you. Uh, of course. What has been the worst piece of advice you've ever received from someone? Oh, gosh. You know, I, <laughs> I think, let's see. You know, I think um, from my perspective, I have been so fortunate in my life. And part of that comes from my privilege, from being white and being, you know, growing up comfortably. Um, that sort of, I happen to have this belief that it'll, everything will just be okay in the end. Um, and I, I worry about saying that to kids too much because a lot of things being turning out okay in the end um, require us to dig deeper than we than we might think we need to. And I, like I said, I was very very fortunate, but a lot of people um, just sort of assumed that things would turn out okay for me. Mainly, like I said, because of privilege and stuff. And and I think saying that to kids does them a disservice because I think we need to be talking to them a little bit more about what it takes sometimes for things to turn out okay and taking care of ourselves and taking care of the people around us. So it'll just turn out okay or it'll turn out the way it's supposed to turn out. That kind of stuff um, takes the locus of control and self-efficacy away from the subject. So that's, I think that's probably, and I can't think of the person in particular that said that to me, but I think that sentiment maybe isn't the best. That, that answer actually sparked so many questions for me <laughs> right there, but I, I won't ask him. Uh, my final question for you, Jessica, this is my all time favorite question that I ask everyone at the end. It's a hypothetical one. So I just want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been okay. able to reach the age of 100. Your friends okay. decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll just call it magic. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want yeah. 
that film to say and to show about your life? I, I want to know what my where my students are. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, for me, I have learned and grown and taken the most joy. I mean, obviously in my own children, but I think anyone would say that. Um, I think that's sort of a given, but knowing, staying in touch with and knowing what my students are doing and what they've learned and what they're continuing to learn. And especially having worked with the the kids for the five years in rehab, I just, I want to know, and I'm not really allowed to know where they are. There's, I have a limited amount of information about my students. Often I didn't even know their last names. Um, I'm, I'm dying to know where those people are and that they're okay. And just two weeks ago, actually, I tweeted, I had forgotten about it completely. When I worked, um, in my early twenties, I worked at Duke university and during my, at the hospital and during my lunch breaks, I had a job, a volunteer job where I went to, I got to go to the intensive, the neonatal intensive care unit. And I held the babies whose parents couldn't be there a lot to hold them. And I realized just recently that they would be in their late 20s now. And I am dying to know where those babies are. So I think if someone could show me where my students and those babies are, I think I think that would be that would be killer. That would be awesome. I can only imagine the feeling you must get, like if you were to actually see that. Oh my gosh. Well, and and it's so it's such an intangible. That's a pun, intangible. But you know, you were I was you know you're holding babies that are not going to get enough human connection unless someone's there to hold them. And it's not like you're teaching them something. It's not like you've given the families money. It's not this like it's just human to human contact. And you know, there's all kinds of studies on that. But I just want to see. I just want to see who they are and where they are now. And knowing that you had some tiny tiny intangible effect on on these people it's pretty cool it's pretty cool it's beautiful well jessica where can people connect with you find your books buy them and learn more about you so everything that you could ever want is at jessicalahey.com and in fact if you go there under one of the menu options is speaking. There's a big button that says download speaking bibliography. And it's my favorite books about lots of topics I get asked about a lot. I just update it all the time. And it's everything from my favorite YouTube educators to my favorite books about education to my favorite parenting books, all that kind of stuff. New books that are coming out all the time. My dogs just (laughs) discovered the squeaky toys. Um, And yeah, and I'm on Twitter at at Jess Leahy and on Instagram at at Teacher Leahy. I actually looked at that huge bibliography that you you put together, which is pretty cool. Um, So I really, really do enjoy, and I have enjoyed, sorry, speaking to you today. Thank you so much for your wisdom as well and for coming on the Storybox podcast today. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guests today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the Storybox on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. 
And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.